join me in welcoming to the Distinctive Voices podium, Dr. Paul Dawson. Thank you, Jennifer. Uh, can I redo it if I mess up? <laughs> I was reading the, uh, it's a great honor to be here, Distinctive Voices. I appreciate all the support. I read that the members give a lot of money, and I appreciate being uh, offered the opportunity to speak. But I was reading the introduction or the background, and it says uh, cutting edge technology and hot topics. So you're probably wondering the same thing I'm wondering. How, what am I, what's this joke we're doing here talking about double dipping in the five second rule? Is that really a hot topic or cutting edge technology? So a little bit of background how I got here. Uh, we got to this point giving a talk on this topic. Uh, you see on the screen we have a creative inquiry program at Clemson. And it's not unlike other institutions that have undergraduate research, but it has a little twist that we have teams of undergraduate students. And in our curriculum in food science and human nutrition, each faculty member has a topic they work on and teams of seven to 10 students each semester. And we require our students to do six semesters, their sophomore, junior, senior years, participate in these teams they rotate through. Long story short, my topic is, is survival and transfer of bacteria on food surfaces. So we started this about 10 years ago. And the neat thing is each semester we meet and we, we come up with an idea from scratch. The students go through. And, they, and the objective is to learn how to do research, the students, and also uh, work in teams, which really helps them when they graduate in jobs. Well, we finished the first one. It was on the five-second rule. And it was a research project. We did replication, statistics. And I said, well, why not try to publish this? So I published it in the Journal of Food Microbiology. And I think it's with the title. It'll show up later. Uh, and lo and behold, anybody know the name Harold McGee? Yes, Curious Cook. He picked it up, and he writes for the New York Times, put it, wrote an article in there, and all heck broke loose, getting calls from the media. Uh, did one on double dipping. He wrote another article, kind of steamrolled. One thing led to another, and, and now writing a book about it. And so this has gotten the news, so uh, that's how it kind of got here. So. Let's get busy. I have this, this graphical outline that we're going to go through. Uh, I want to say now the, and acknowledge the, uh, the, uh, who did most of these drawings is a Brian Chalnowski. Uh, and I'll recognize him at the end. Uh, five, we're going to look at the five-second rule, talk about a little background, a uh, little history about it. Then, of course, everybody knows beer pong. If you don't know what beer pong is, we'll, we'll talk about it when we get there. College campuses right next door. I'm sure Irvine, you know very well what that, what that is. Uh, restaurant menus, what, when you go to a restaurant, what, what do you, when you touch the menu, kind of what's happening? Blowing out birthday candles. Uh, and right behind that, kind of airborne bioaerosols, we have hand dryers or bacteria blowers, whichever you prefer. <laughs> and, uh, and then sharing food. I know I got this idea when I went, had popcorn. I was eating myself popcorn. You kind of dig it in the bag, and you come back, and you get this wet piece of popcorn in your hand. So how, did, how did that happen? So, and then, and then the infamous double dipping from uh, George Costanza and Seinfeld. And we'll try to bring it back a little sanity at the end with a little CDC discussion, food safety, a little common sense. And I, I just say that uh, this is either going to be germaphobes' uh, worst nightmare or their <laughs> validation, one or the other. Five-second rule. This, this is a cartoon, obviously, appeared, appeared on the Wiki World by Greg Williams, kind of gives you the background of what that is. I'm sure most people know. Uh, popular rule, it says there that 
old wives' tale regarding eating food that's been dropped on the floor uh, and had a little bacteria counting, one, two, three, five-second rule, so forth. Uh, so, raise the hands. How many people have eaten food off the floor? <laughs> there you go. Okay. Actually, there, actually, there was a uh, study done, uh, I'll review this, in University of Illinois, one of the first ones that actually mentioned the five-second rule back in 2003. Actually, women, there are more women that have eaten food off the floor than men. <laughs> their side, so. And we, we assume that women are less wasteful. So, but speaking of surfaces, there was a study, not ours, that looked at uh, over 1,000 public places in Tucson, Chicago, San Francisco, and Tampa, they found that 21% of the movie theaters and 51% said the restaurants had highly contaminated surfaces. And they just judged that by number of bacteria. Now, just because it's contaminated with bacteria doesn't mean it's unhealthy, but we'll get to that a little later too. But one in five had a uh, biochemical marker, which is categorized as blood, urine, sweat, or mucus. So I'll give you that. So where did the, where the five-second rule originate? Uh, there's one thing called the Khan Rule. Genghis Khan believed in writings that, and the Khan Rule was that if food was prepared for Genghis Khan, it could sit on the floor as long as it wanted, because it needed, because it was prepared for him. If it was prepared for him, it was good as long as he said it was. Then, of course, those of you who remember the, the uh, French chef, Julia's child, there was some stories that she dropped turkey on the floor and made a comment, if nobody's in the kitchen, you can still pick it up. In reality, was she dropped a pancake, a potato pancake, on the stovetop and said, "If nobody's in the, if you're alone in the kitchen, it's okay to put it back in the." So, so we're not sure where that started, but that's that's kind of the story. But there's a real uh, concern, of course, with cross contamination. In this example here, cutting uh, raw chicken on the surface uh, turns out that we did, and it's been documented by other people as well that if you don't clean that surface and it looks clean visually, salmonella and other bacteria can survive up to 28 days on that surface. So, so you, you do that or I do that, and you come behind me and make a sandwich, and there could be some cross-contamination, 28 days. Here's a quick summary, I won't go through all these, but I mentioned 2003, really was the first mention of the five-second rule. Undergraduate University of Illinois dropped gummy bears and fudge cookies on tiles that had been inoculated and found cross-contamination, but there was no publication. And I will say there are a lot of publications on bacterial transfer, some really sophisticated studies on how much pressure and all, but these are ones just directly mention the five-second rule. Now, I wouldn't call Mythbusters really a study, but they, they did, Jamie Hyman and Adam Savage back in 2005 did uh, drop pastrami and crackers on surfaces and it, so there was transfer. And they're just trying to prove that it can't happen, so they did that. We published our study back in 2006, and we'll go through that a little later, a little more detail. 2007, an interesting study in Connecticut College. Uh, two seniors dropped food on the floor and uh, said, came up with the idea, the conclusion that Skittles were safe after 30 seconds and apple slices after 60 seconds. <laughs> I'll say right now, though, what they did was really kind of a different question. Is they didn't really, they didn't inoculate the surface. They walked around the college campus and just dropped it randomly. So. They weren't really measuring how transfer, there's really probably the, the contamination of that surface. Uh, there's a 2014 in the UK, there was a study again, no publication. Uh, we saw this on the Science Channel, a uh, show used to be called Quick and the Curious. A NASA engineer dropped cookies in a park and asked people if they would eat the cookie. <laughs> uh, 
interesting study. And then there was a very good study in 2016 of Don Schaffner out of Rutgers University. And he kind of expanded on what we did, uh, stainless steel carpet and wood. He dropped water, used watermelon, bread, and uh, gummy bears. And in that order, watermelon had the most bread, and then gummy bears had the least, he found in that study. So answer the question, can food be dropped up to five seconds without bacteria get on the floor? You read the cartoon there. The guy said, what? Your thumb doing my steak? You say, I want me to drop it again? <laughs> and uh, here's, our, here's our study. And again, we kind of looked, again, set up an experiment, set up treatments, uh, looked at the food. We used uh, bologna and bread for our two, food, two foods we tested. The surface, we used carpet, tiles, it says, and wood surfaces. And then time, how long was on there, but also how long was the bacteria on the surface before you dropped the food? There were two time factors. So really, strict, really quick, strict, simple methods. Uh, we inoculate the tile with salmonella, let the bacteria remain there between five minutes and 24 hours, drop bologna or bread on the tile, leave it there different times, and then recover the bacteria from the bologna or bread later on, and, and uh, see how many were transferred. Okay, a little busy slide here, but very quickly, this is uh, bologna. After five minutes, tile's been sitting there five minutes with salmonella on it. We drop it for you know, five seconds in black, 30 seconds in green, and 60 seconds in, uh, in gray. So you can see tile, wood, and carpet. Carpet is generally a little lower. These are log values, so they're you know, 10 to that power, 10 to the 6, so you got a million cells on there. And you could technically say that in carpet, time had an effect, but that's really well, the interpretation there is kind of misleading. I, I would conclude from a food microbiologist that it's not safe, obviously, when you've got 100,000 bacteria on that uh, bologna, piece of bologna. So uh, again, and again, you can see the carpet had a little less in that case. This time, bologna, but the, this time the, we used this, the, the, the salmonella had been on the tile for 24 hours before we dropped. So you see the lower numbers. So what that tells us is, again, like we can pretty common sense would tell you, it's not how long the food's on the surface, it's how long the bacteria has been on the surface. That's the time factor. But nevertheless, tile, wood, and carpet, after 24 hours, there was less bacteria for the bologna to pick up. But again, we see some statistical differences uh, in wood and carpet. Again, we could say that time was a factor, but again, you still got enough bacteria there, in this case, probably to make someone, certainly is immunocompromised, ill. This case is white bread, and I kind of have a different representation. You're showing that time effect. Zero hour is how long, well, actually five minutes, how long the salmonella was on the tile before we put bread on it. Uh, two hours, it was on two hours, four hours, eight hours, and 24 hours, salmonella was sitting on the tile before we put bread on it. So you can see kind of a dropping off. And that's either the, obviously, salmonella is kind of decreasing in numbers. It also might be attaching more closely to the tile, forming a biofilm with that tile. And again, really, I would conclude that there's really not much difference in the five seconds versus 30, 60 seconds. And you see, I got the scale there. We're already over almost four logs or 10,000 bacteria still after 24 hours being picked up by a piece of wa dry white bread. So that led us to the next question. We've already answered it, but we'll kind of go through the data we found. How long does salmonella survive on, on tile? Well, while we're here, this anybody recognize that person? Antoine, yeah. 
he actually was the first person in the 1600s to visualize bacteria. Up to that point, really didn't, people didn't know, the general public didn't know what there were bacteria. And he actually was not a microbiologist. He, was, he made uh, glass or magnifying instruments. And so he identified there's back, what bacteria were in the 1600s. And then I mentioned about biofilms, kind of a graphic there. You really can't read what's on the bottom, but just show there's platonic bacteria, which kind of floating around in solution. Then there's biofilm bacteria attached to a surface. It really is really dangerous. It causes a lot of problems with, it, with a, like colitis. Actually, is one of the compounding factors in cystic fibrosis because the, the biofilms in the lungs can't re release the fluid. So biofilms are a real problem. So in this graph, we kept the, the bacteria on there for knocked out the tile, left it for one week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, recovered them. We actually were curious because if you're cutting chicken on the surface, you actually have some chicken juices there, and they actually have some nutrients in that. So we took a standard media, diluted it down to 10%, 1%, and 0.1%. So very weak media there, but wanted to see if that made a difference, and it, and it did make a difference. Uh, bad news was that even after four weeks, even with the weakest media, there still were cells we were recovering of salmonella, viable cells off that tile. So that's per square centimeter of tile. And again, lastly, we talked about carpet. You know, actually, carpet in this case, for most of that 24 hours, the salmonella survived better on carpet, even though we had less transfer. It kind of makes sense if I spill a chicken juice on this carpet, you drop bread on it, there's going to be a Sound is going to be absorbed into the carpet, so not much surface area, but it likes living down there in the carpet, obviously, here in 24 hours. So that's kind of the, the last tell, story to tell. If you're going to drop it on the floor, I guess it's carpet. <laughs> Best option. <laughs> so, beer pong. Beer pong originated in the 1950s, according to our, our studies in the, at uh, Dartmouth, in the Ivy League, if you will. Originally played with a ping pong paddle, and then uh, Lehigh and Bucknell modified that to be using your hand. Today, it's being kind of used with uh, throwing with a hand. If you don't know what it is, I'm who, who, who doesn't know what beer pong is? Raise your hand. Oh, we got a few. Okay. Okay, beer pong's a game that you see the cup there, and the goal is to throw the ping pong ball in the cup, standing on opposite sides of a table, with, and the cup's got beer in it. If I throw the ping pong ball in your cup, you got to drink your beer. Okay? And most times, well, oftentimes, the ball does not land in the cup. So it's bouncing around on the floor. And so our students, actually, this, our students, this was a student idea on our CI team. So you can imagine, <laughs> I didn't come up with this. And we kind of have Bob Euchre there, because what usually happens is the ball, if you ever try to pick a ping pong ball up, you're actually playing ping pong, you've got to wait for it to stop rolling to pick it up. So that's where we got that. So what do we do? Actually, it was a, actually, it was a, a Miami game homecoming at Clemson, and students went around the campus gathering up ping pong balls that were being used in ping beer pong games. Brought them back to the lab, and then we enumerated what the, bac the bacteria on those ping pong balls. Uh, as you see, uh, we have some possible pathogen carriers. And you can imagine, you're playing, they're playing beer pong, and one of, the, one of the worst things is the hand. They're handling it. You know, you've got bacteria in your hand. And the more you play beer pong, and you're drink, if you lose, you're drinking beer, and you've got to go to the bathroom, right? Okay. They go to the bathroom. They've been drinking, so are they likely to wash their hands? And they come back and play beer pong, so you can see the story here. Anyway. <laughs> so, 
Students gathered, uh, scattered out around campus, collected beer pong balls, had the beer pong ball spinning there with bacteria on it. We, kept, we had them keep track of where the game was being played. It was being played on a, on a carpeted floor inside, vinyl floor inside, a wooden porch, hardwood, outdoors, and then we have an average overall. You can see here that outdoors, we were finding over 200,000 bacteria per ball, uh, down to 600 for carpet. And these are averages. And these are, so there's extreme, some are zero, some are really high. So there's bacteria on these axle balls that are being played. Now, we don't know what's good or bad. At the end, I have a, we did some presumptive identification, but there's bacteria on these ping pong balls. But in fact, you know, are you concerned about the average or the worst case scenario? Well, we actually found 300 million, 3 million bacteria on one ping pong ball we recovered from these games. So some of these are really highly con contaminated. So we, our first experiment was concluded. We, there is bacteria on ping pong balls that are used during beer pong games, which you might be pretty obvious. The next step was, OK, if there's, if there's ping, uh, bacteria on the ping pong ball, is it transmitted to, back, to the beer? So, that was an easier study. We did that in the lab. Undergrads in the lab with beer. So anyway, uh, we uh, very simple. These are simple experiments, but we replicated them. Again, students are learning how to do research. Uh, we inoculated ping pong balls with actually a fluorescent E. coli. Uh, we have a little I have a little picture in the corner there. This is a fluorescent gene added to the bacteria, and so we can. This way, we know that the bacteria we're counting in the beer is actually the ones we inoculate on the ball and not other ones. So we want to know that transfer. Inoculate the ping pong ball, let it dry for about five minutes or, or less, throw it in the beer, measure bacteria in the beer. Pretty simple. And by the way, over here, that one little graphics or little word for bacteria saying, oh, beer, I can live in this no problem -o. <laughs> That is true, because there was actually a study that a person did, if you were uh, going to a country that had bad water, so to speak, a third world country, what alcoholic drink would be best to drink to prevent Montezuma's revenge? And they found that it actually was almost pure scotch or tequila. It took about 180 proof before it really reduced the bacterial count that much. So beer is not going to do it. It's not going to protect you. Okay, so. We actually, our control was we took a non-inoculated ball, threw it in the beer, recovered the bacteria from the beer, measured the beer itself, okay, and then threw an inoculated ball in the beer. And we started with about 10 to 6 on the inoculated uh, ping pong balls. And you can see we recovered. It was, it was a very high transfer of the bacteria from the ping pong ball to the beer. Again, not, not surprising. And the reason we found really no bacteria in the beer, again, we were only measuring the bacteria that we inoculate on the ball with that fluorescent E. coli. So that's a very controlled study there. So here, here uh, in the corner, I have our picture. Our, uh, we, took, we did identify from those, some of those presumptive identification of those bacteria recovered from the, the random games recovered during the homecoming weekend. And I've kind of highlighted, these are just groups of bacteria from Berge's manual, but some of those groups include Listeria, Staph, E. coli, or Escherichia, and Salmonella. So you know, there's the chances of it being in the beer. And in fact, uh, the world be there's actually a World Beer Pong Championship now, if you knew that or not. There's some European leagues. And actually, uh, the fellow's name's Billy something, and he's kind of the CEO, whatever, the World Beer Pong Championship. And he said that 
people who participate in that over the weekends, they started back in 2009, complain of, of they call it Pong flu. <laughs> but he's not sure whether it's actually the beer, too much beer, or something else they're getting when they're playing beer pong, or a combination thereof. And actually, back in the, in the late 2000s, uh, University Rentelier University of New York actually stopped uh, beer pong from being played because they were having, they thought that there was a flu going around and it was being, outbreak was getting worse because of beer pong. So there's some anecdotal information that beer pong may be an issue. Okay, now, you ever go into a restaurant that you sit down and have a menu and wondered, who's touched that menu before I have? <laughs> Pretty much everybody in the restaurant, okay? The, People have been there before you, the wait staff. Okay, so question is, well, one question I ask is, can you get sick from eating out? The answer is yes. Okay. The CDC, between 1998 and 2015, reported about 20, 000, a little less 20,000 reported foodborne outbreaks. Uh, and an outbreak's different from sick. An outbreak requires multiple people, so but those are the ones the CDC really can document most easily. 72% reported from a single preparation location. And uh, we'll get to the next, about 63% were from restaurants or delis. Uh, good news is uh, there are public health uh, inspections. And you may have gone in restaurants. I know in the East Coast, you probably have them here. There's A, B, and C ratings. If you don't see A, I'd walk out. <laughs> in fact, I don't know about Orange County, but LA County, last I, I checked online, they checked, spend about $10 million in these inspections. So that's the good news. They're trying to keep the sanitation good in these locations. But I don't know if there's any protocol for cleaning uh, menus. Here's a breakdown again from these outbreaks. Again, not all illnesses, but about 63% from restaurants or delis, 15% from uh, other, we don't know, 12% from private home, and 10% from catering. So. Again, the answer is you can get sick from eating out. We went out and uh, in around the Clemson area and swabbed menus. Again, we had two, two parts of this study. Again, we went out and did random sampling and then did some transfer study in the lab. This is the first part. And we just went around and checked restaurants. We categorized them best we could as far as the type of restaurant. And we've got a Mexican restaurant there, uh, pub, pizza joint, steakhouse. We call them upscale, on kind of relative, than other. And we took a, a swab, swab the same pattern on each menu, and then uh, brought it back to the lab and measured it. Now, you can imagine students going into a restaurant, and this is not probably something the restaurant wants you to do. <laughs> you see someone swabbing anything in a the restaurant, they're going to be suspicious. So it's kind of you know, under the cover or whatever. And I, I, did, I did some myself, but uh, so that, you can imagine students kind of doing that. This is a busy slide here, but uh, actually we categorized when they were there, or maybe trying to figure out the difference between slow and busy times. Busy times are between 11 and 1.30, or 5 and 5.30 and 7 during dinner time. Really there was no pattern across the board between slow and busy, but these were actually total bacteria. So the pizza joint, bar, Mexican steak, this is no condemnation of a type of restaurant, just our, ran, our, our simple sample in Clemson. But there were uh, a maximum, uh, in one case, over 3,000 bacteria on the menu, and as low as actually, what is it, 15? Uh, average, average was 15, the lowest was, it looked like 30. Uh, 
as far as the maximum. But I uh, kind of say in the bottom there, actually this is a, a, a sample, a, a zigzag sample. And the total surface area on the menu is about 40 to 80 times greater. Depending, menus are different sizes. So it could be 40, 80 times as large, uh, as, as higher than this, if you take the whole surface of the menu. Not likely to be the same, but it's going to be higher anyway. Then we actually looked at staph, because staph is a common hand and also can be a foodborne pathogen. And there were, uh, not as many, but there were staphylococcus there again. Uh, and again, slow and busy really didn't have a pattern. Bottom line is, there's still uh, bacteria, staph bacteria being found on these random sampled menus. So, the, uh, in the lab, we decided again to take uh, inoculate menus, see if it is transferred to the hands, and says so how we did that, very simple. Uh, we found that E. coli was transferred to the menus at very high rates, uh, on average, about 11% of the bacteria were transferred that were on the menu to your hands, they were there. Now, 11% doesn't sound that bad, but the problem is if you've got a million cells, you're going to have over 100,000 cells on your hand. And again, most menus probably aren't that contaminated, but you could have, you've probably seen this in some restaurants, a uh, child putting food on the menu or coughing on a menu or worse, I don't know. So, uh, and a maximum, of course, that 32% of the bacteria on that menu was transferred to the hands. So there was a significant amount of bacteria transferred in some cases. So we are curious now about how it survived. So we inoculated menus and then left them for 24 hours and 48 hours. And again, we see a big reduction in percent. But still, if a highly contaminated menu is there and it's not being sanitized over a day or two, there's going to be bacteria surviving. And other studies have found that staph can survive on plastic laminated surfaces for up to 90 days. So there is a significant chance of that. And actually, uh, again, it turns out that the bacteria is more likely to be transferred in plastic than it is paper. And kind of some of the studies we've done before. So again, this begs the question, maybe there should be, and some, I'm sure, restaurants clean their menus, but there may be a standard HACCP plan to, to clean menus. What's next? Burning, blowing birthday candles out. I got a little graphic here. So you've probably been to a birthday party, and I don't want to, you know, if you're really young or you're whatever, and you see kids in there, and they're getting right over the cake, and they're blowing, and then they're coughing, and then they're blowing against so whatever, trying to blow. Because it could be, could be a problem. Now, where did blowing birthday candles that come start? The earliest documented written part uh, I found was that Back in the 1700s, I believe, it was a man named, I uh, can't remember his name now. Anyway, he, he, uh, they lit candles. And it also, candles being uh, burnt on cakes and smoke going up was believed to, to uh, in ancient Greek to be, Greece to be uh, wishing well to the gods. But anyway, the first documentary was back in the 1700s. Uh, now it's very common. Almost any birthday, child's birthday party has candles being blown out. So we decided to test this, uh, and this is how we did it, because really where the bacteria is going to be is on the top. So we uh, set up our mock cake here, made a styrofoam base with a aluminum foil underneath, and then spread icing on the layer on top, Then actually put candles through that, stick in the styrofoam so we can simulate blowing candles out. And so we had, in our test, we had 
subjects blowing candles out, and then we'd also do the exact same thing without blowing candles out to have a control. Put candles in there and took them out and, and actually enumerated the bacteria on both those cases to compare blowing candles out versus everything except not blowing the candles out. Pretty simple, right? So we were surprised to find uh, a lot of bacteria being landing on the top of the cake. Uh, a maximum, again, I think maximums and minimums are pretty important to uh, consider, but our mean, uh, almost 3,000 uh, when, when, when they were blown out. And again, these are, we didn't have any, uh, in this case, is someone's breath blowing on there. We didn't have any uh, labeled bacteria like we did before with the E. coli. So obviously, this is just someone's. So there's going to be some bacteria there. We've had 183 bacteria versus over 3,000. So clearly there's bacteria transferred. The median, uh, still 600. And then a maximum of 37,000 bacteria found on one of the cakes being blown. So blow versus no blow. So what, where does that leave us? Bioaerosols, and we were talking about this a little before with, some, with, the, before with my talk. Uh, an average bioaerosol, like I'm talking now, unfortunately I better back up because I'm generating bioaerosols. And they've been known to stay in the air for 30 hours in some studies. Uh, the particle size in bioaerosols from speaking is about 16 microns in size. Coughing a little smaller, I think you're forcing it out. But bacteria are about one-tenth the size of, of a bioaerosol droplet. And viruses, about one-hundredth, so you can see the size there. So they can ride on these, and they do very comfortably. In fact, one study found that in a room of people talking, uh, that there were between 693 to 6,293 bacteria per cubic meter. Uh, and in fact, talking about blowing, you're actually blowing on a cake, you're probably generating more bioaerosols than just talking. And in fact, uh, there are several infectious diseases that are transferred specifically by the uh, saliva droplets, between tuberculosis, pneumonia, flu, SARS, and Legionnaire's disease. So, uh, it, you know, and then there's a story of typhoid Mary. Everybody knows the story of typhoid Mary. Mary Milan uh, worked uh, as a cook, uh, an Irish immigrant, and she had no symptoms. So it doesn't necessarily, you don't have to be coughing and be sick to be a carrier. Uh, it's quite a sad story for her because during that time, they didn't, didn't know that she had, she had no symptoms. She thought she was being unjustly uh, accused, but she was. Uh, found to be a carrier of typhoid and uh, eventually quarantined and on an island. So you don't have to be sick to be uh, generating bioaerosols. Here we go. Hand dryers are bacteria blowers. Okay. Now you've ever been in a bathroom and probably really the the high the high uh, velocity air dryer or hand blowers are I believe worse if you want to say categorize them than the regular ones so to speak. But you've been in there and they're blowing towels around the bathroom and <laughs> so forth. And you, it's not that, and it's, we talked about bioaerosols, it goes right, al right along with this is that it's also blowing, blowing water droplets around the room. In fact, uh, if you flush a toilet, there's bioaerosols coming out of the toilet. Uh, the, uh, the FDA has approved, is, currently has approved uh, hand dryers in food. Uh, 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 locations as a hand drying method. Do you notice you're in a hospital, you don't see ha air hand dryers in the hospital areas because they're not approved in medical because obviously they're going to blow things around in the hospital in the room. So 
hand towels in that case are used there. So what did we do? We went out, again, we had two phases of this uh, study. Went around the Clemson area, we went to the university bathrooms that had hand blowers, grocery stores, and then gas stations, combination markets. And went in there and again, went in there when nobody was in the, in the bathroom and put a petri dish under the blower, turn it on, let it run its cycle, take it back to the lab. <laughs> had a swab in there, we swabbed the button, and also the intake, have you ever seen one of those intakes underneath what they're sucking into the blower? <laughs> okay, so we swabbed that as well. What do we find? We found, in the, we found a lot of bacteria. Uh, the push button and air inlets were quite uh, high. Uh, and again, people are touching them with their hands, and they're, and it's, they're sucking back, they're kind of concentrating bacteria as they suck it in from the intake. Uh, air coming out, not as bad, but still, blowing out bacteria in the room. And uh, in the grocery stores, highly enough, were the, the highest ones we found. I didn't say much for grocery stores in the Clemson area, I guess. But uh, uh, college campuses and gas stations, again, over 2,000 bacteria on those outlets. And the range there, you see up to 8,000 in both cases and 37,000 in the grocery store. And again, these are different. we kept track of velocity, air velocity, uh, temperature. Some are different temperatures. So, keep track of all that. Yeah, men, men, we got we're worse than women. The men's bathrooms are a lot worse than women's. Uh, even though they eat food off the floor, we got the dirty bathrooms. So, uh, we categorize the gays on, on gender. Now, here's a second study. And that actually study on the left is someone else's, and the one on the right of the screen is the one we did. So we inoculated on the right side, I'll do ours first, uh, a nozzle with bacteria. I said there's bacteria on that nozzle. Then we put these plates, petri dishes, certain distances from that uh, blower, turned it on, 30 seconds, let it run its cycle. And you can see the bacteria we collected up to uh, a yard away, 76 and, and uh, 37 in different angles. Anyway, we're, we're collecting bacteria a significant difference away, distance away from that blower based on its one cycle. Now, the study on the left is very interesting. I wish I'd thought of this. Someone had an uh, air dryer. They put black paint on it. I have green there, but they put a black paint on the nozzle. Had someone stand in front of it like they were drying their hands, and they turned it on. With a, and they were wearing a white Tibet suit. This shows you where the spots ended up. So one spot up by the mouth, 144 spots in the chest, and so forth. So clearly, it's blowing whatever's there onto you or on, 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 in the room. There's other studies that show that they've inoculated the, the, the uh, hand dryer and it's several yards away in the bathroom, they're still collecting that bacteria. So clearly, as we know, bioaerosols, they're gonna be blown around the room and, and a hand dryer uh, is doing that in bathrooms. That's why they're not in hospitals, one reason. Okay, we talked about passing, we have a, have a, we did a study on sharing food, but I'm focused on passing popcorn. Uh, again, I mentioned before, I got this idea because I was eating popcorn and I got one that was wet, and I said, how did that get wet? You know? So that's where we got this idea. A little history about popcorn, if you will. Uh, back in uh, 4,000 years, they found, a, uh, in 1948 in New Mexico, they found an ear of corn in a cave, and it was the one I'm talking there on, on the left side of the screen. It was about 4,000 years old. 
nothing to do with popcorn. But uh, 1519, the Aztecs used popcorn for eating and decoration. Really, popcorn came to the US, I believe, in the 1800s when sailors actually were sailing up from South America. 1930s, popcorn during the Depression was a very popular uh, snack because it was very inexpensive. You would go to the movies and have a snack, and it was very inexpensive to uh, get very popular. And then, you remember, I remember Jiffy Pop, you know, that was a big breakthrough. You could on the stove and it popped by itself. And then microwave packages introduced in the 70s. Uh, that's kind of a quick rundown of popcorn. So, eat popcorn with your hands. There was a study. This is the UK, though, so you're all right, unless you're from the UK. <laughs> Anybody from the UK? Uh, they did a study in the UK of five cities. 28% uh, of the UK commuters had fecal matter on their hands. Uh, they were worse for people who ride buses, apparently. So that's what, I don't know if you've ever been on a bus, but and holding those handles and whatnot always worries me. Uh, these, anyway, these are all things that you can have on your hand. Uh, then you go to a movie theater, or someone, not you, but someone else, goes to the movie theater and touches a seat and so forth. You can imagine that. Uh, so, what do we, we uh, a simple method again, we did this all in the lab. We inoculated hands, picked up popcorn, and then we enumerate, enumerated the bacteria on the hand that we picked up and also what was left in the bowl. And we did a little pre-study to see how much is in a handful. We'll try to standardize the amount at our students do it multiple times and weigh it, and we found about two and a half grams was a handful for most people. Try to standardize that amount. This, this surprised me uh, that this is the percent of samples that were contaminated. Uh, I, I would expect the 85% to be contaminated you picked up, but I was really surprised that 79% of what was left in the bowl was also contaminated. Uh, that doesn't bode well for sharing popcorn with someone else. Uh, and again, we used the labeled E. coli, so we knew we were only counting the bacteria that was on the hand that we had inoculated. And uh, here's the, uh, you know, the number of bacteria. Again, we uh, had a mean, 185, but a high number of 182, so not 1,820. And then remaining in the bowl, again, very low numbers as far as the mean, but I think 415 per handful was would be a problem. But interesting, on the left, I had on the right side there, I have how many handfuls there are in a bucket of popcorn. <laughs> Typical size, it's going to be 24 to 48 handfuls if you go to the movies and get a standard size. Not one of those big monster ones, but just a regular one. It's going to be 24 to 48 handfuls. So you can imagine you're going multiple times. We need just one scoop, so that could magnify that number significantly. So what's on the popcorn? I'm sorry, LA, New York. <laughs> this wasn't a research study. 2020 did a study a few years ago and found fecal matter on the movie theater seats in LA and New York. Uh, not to mention, probably, again, back to the hands and human transfer, probably the person sitting, if you don't know them real well, or they're sick, they're putting their hand in their mouth and putting it back in the bowl. Uh, so that could be a problem there. Uh, so, last one, before we get to some common sense, uh, double dipping. You remember the Seinfeld? That's where we got the idea was from Seinfeld. This is several years ago. Uh, George Costanza goes to the wake of the wedding, or the wake, the wake, funeral, and Timmy's there, and he's there double dipping, and they get in a struggle, and George says, I don't dip that way, 
and, and Timmy says, it's like putting your whole mouth in the dip. So I actually found this newspaper, although I took a picture of it because I couldn't resist, uh, that city cop was indicted for double dipping. But it, obviously it's a double dipping, different kind of double dipping. So we had three sets of experiments. Because uh, first of all, I didn't think initially that we were going to get much transfer. You think you bite a chip or a cracker, and there's not much surface area there. You stick it in, you know, you stick it out. It's not going to be much transfer. So we did the first one with sterile water just to see if there was any transfer at all. We found transfer, so we decided to go, well, you know, usually dips are different, are low pH. And so we did three different pH levels, pH 4, 5, and 6. And we found transfer again. So we decided to go with the real dip, and we did uh, three different store-bought dips. And if you work at food science, you work in the lab, food microbiology, the reason we really didn't go to the dips right off the bat because isolating bacteria from food samples is a little more work. So we, that's why we did it this way. Okay, I think I have a little movement here. Yeah, there we go. So that kind of describes the whole thing. By the way, Alton Brown, you know Alton Brown is, he defined a dip is defined by its ability to maintain contact with its transport mechanism over three feet of white carpet. <laughs> so, I'm not sure salsa will pass that test. So our first experiment, again, I did, wasn't sure we'd get much transfer, so I decided we'd, we'd do three, but we did, took a cracker, bit it, dipped it, put it aside, took another cracker, bit it, dipped it, put it aside, did it three times, or did the same thing and dipped it and didn't bite it. We also did six repetitions of that with a cracker. So we're comparing three bites and dip versus three no bites and dip, and same thing with six. Then we measured bacteria up in the water after that. Well, we found some bacteria in there, uh, really uh, a lot, I think. Uh, considering. So we were, I, was, I was surprised at that. And again, we found it over uh, 1,800 with three bites and 2,600 with six bites. So there was more, but not uh, linearly, increased with more bites. Okay, so now acid, acid in food, a lot of dips. Got a little graphic here. So we did four, pH four. This is again just ster water with, sterile water with pH adjusted. We did five, pH five and a pH 6. And since we found transfer with three crackers, we didn't see any sense in doing six again. So we did three crackers, each being bit once before dipping versus not being bit before dipping in a measure of pH. Just a, a quick graphic on pH and what kind of some uh, points that show foods that, and different things that show you what pH their pH is. Lemon juice is about pH 2, cola, pH 3, and vinegar. Tomatoes, depending on the, they vary, not all around that range. Black coffee, human saliva, blood, sea water, baking soda, milk of magnesia, ammonia. Actually, corn's one of the few foods that are a higher pH than neutral. Uh, most foods are, are, are neutral or below. And then finally, oven cleaner and a drain opener. Very high pH, very basic. You don't want to eat that, yeah. We didn't test that. So, pH 4. Uh, Lower number than pH 5, and, but a higher and pH 6. So we saw a little increase in uh, the number of bacteria in these foods. And actually, we did simulating a party. We did it, measured the amount of bacteria right away after we dipped and then held it two hours as if you were having a party uh, and came back two hours later and still the dip was there. And we saw a decrease, as you see, or interesting, on the pH 4 
really a big decrease in pH. We say, all right, salsa, you know, those, P, those, those low pH dips are going to be okay. pH 5, you don't see that decrease. pH 6, so it's not surprising. Computer microbiologists or microbiologists in the room would, would, would understand. Everybody understands that. pH will kill bacteria. So now we still found bacteria, though. So we've got to try the real dip. So here we go. We're doing salsa, chocolate, and cheese. So we did the same thing again, three, three uh, crackers bit and dipped versus not bit and dipped in each one of those. Here we have a partially eaten cracker. I'll share that again real quick. Again, just like it was a party. Now, not a Super Bowl party. It would be like, what, four or six hours long, so it could be longer. But we just did two hours, keep the standard. Some interesting things here we didn't think about. Uh, if you notice that the salsa is higher than the chocolate and the cheese. Anybody guess why? Why is the salsa higher than the chocolate and the cheese? Close. Yes. Actually, one thing we didn't think about, because before we were using, we were using sterile water, it has the same viscosity. Salsa is very thin compared to chocolate and cheese, so when you dip it in the dip, a lot of it falls back in versus the chocolate and the cheese that sticks to the cracker. So if you can de develop a dip that doesn't drip, <laughs> you got it made. There's no problem. The other thing you see here is, of course, the decrease in uh, two hours relative to the initial count was greater in the salsa, which we respect with the pH. Uh, so anyway, even with the real dip, there's, there's transfer. And of course, we did viscometer readings of the of the different, this is, this, is, this is my graphic of a Brookfield viscometer, for those of you that are Brookfield viscometer. You stick the unit in there and it gives you a reading for its viscosity. Uh, we also actually measured the weight of the change in weight. We dipped it a bunch of times, so how much is being left versus salsa versus chocolate. So, as I said, it says there, the thicker the sauce, the less saliva falls back in the bowl. So that's a really selling point, I guess, if you're, <laughs> if you're selling cheese or chocolate dip. Okay, so our conclusions there are, uh, of course, the oral, oral cavity is a source of, source of pathogens. Uh, the CDC, again, where you said there's five infectious diseases that can be spread by saliva, and you don't have to have any overt signs of illness to be a uh, carrier. Uh, there's been counts saying there's 20 billion bacteria in your mouth. Of course, that's, they're mostly good. But uh, who knows if anybody or how many people have gotten sick from double dipping. I'm no knowing, but I bet it's at least one. <laughs> so, few, wrapping up now with a few, I think, interesting facts. Uh, probably many of you know this. From the CDC, one in six Americans, 17, 17%, uh, usually have a, have a foodborne illness each year or this year. Estimated 3,000 Americans die from a foodborne illness or agent. Uh, and the cost from hospitalization and loss of life is estimated by the CDC to be $77 billion in 2012. I've kind of pulled up some this summer uh, examples. Uh, there was a recall of Ritz crackers and goldfish. I probably, you probably remember this uh, due to possible salmonella. Kind of if you dig down to the details a little bit, uh, it actually was from a whey powder that was used in the creation of these products. It wasn't from the Really, the company itself, I, they bought the whey powder, but I guess it ultimately is their responsibility. 
you probably remember the big the McDonald's salad from cyclospore outbreak. And it's funny, because it's not funny, but how, how this gets in the media and who gets blamed. This salad was not made by McDonald's. They don't make their own salad. Del Monte made the salad, uh, and they were sold at McDonald's. So and that was in Illinois. Uh, there was salmonella in, raw, in 26 states in raw turkey back in July 11th, and then salmonella from cut melons uh, back in, from April to July. I, I, this is not my headline. I kind of put it on there, but this is from, a, from a, this link because uh, it doesn't make sense. You, know, you read it, I thought, what? Foodborne illness on the rise, is, not a, is that a bad thing? Uh, but they kind of make a point. Fact, uh, statistics are, according to WHO, about 10% of the population gets food poisoning annually, about 760 million people in the world, resulting in about 420,000 deaths worldwide. And their point is uh, more outbreaks may be due to better technology. That doesn't make sense in the sentence, but I, as I said before, outbreaks is, a, is only ones that are caught by the uh, CDC or, or the governing body. Uh, we have very rapid detection, so the sooner you catch the outbreak, you can pre prevent more illnesses. And uh, we have more very sophisticated uh, databases now that link outbreaks to food, catch them much earlier. Okay, so I now have my, wrapping up my what, where, and which slides. So what is making us sick? It's the CDC again, NIH. Uh, in total illnesses, we only know about 20% the source, the, the organism. So 80% of what's making people sick, we don't even, it's not been identified. More than half of hospitalizations, they, again, unknown source, can't identify it. And even deaths, same thing. So that, the known is less than the unknown. But the ones we do know, 250 disease agents, top four causing illness are norovirus, salmonella, Clostridium perfringens and Staphylococcus. Many people probably don't hear, you don't hear about Clostridium perfringens in the news very much, but it's there. And I have norovirus and salmonella highlighted because they appear in all three categories. Top four causing hospitalizations. They switch places, salmonella and norovirus, but now we have Campylobacter and Toxoplasma gondii, a parasite. Uh, obviously, you know, house cat, cats carry Toxoplasma gondii, in case you've got a cat at home. They can carry it. They're known carriers. And then deaths, uh, salmonella, Taxoplasma gondii, Listeria norovirus, still there. And then Listeria comes out of nowhere. It wasn't on the number of illnesses, hospitalization, but there it is, number three, on the number of deaths, which makes why Listeria is on the list of, of concern because very low incidence level, very high mortality rate, about 20% mortality rate, mostly with uh, the unborn, and fetuses. So that's kind of the. We looked at this before. Which so that was our what organism. Now is our which foods. I think you know, telling the telling the general public what organisms causing illness really doesn't help you much. Okay, but what foods and where are these foods coming from? I think helps more. So which foods? So you can see it's kind of a variety all over the place. Uh, no real big segment there. In fact, when you break these down into categories, meat, poultry, plant food, seafood, dairy, and eggs, uh, you can't really dodge it unless you're, I don't know, drinking out of energy drinks out of the can, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> okay. It's been highly processed. 
And where are you getting sick? We already had this slide. These are outbreaks, restaurant, deli, home. And these are outbreaks again. I would venture to say the any CDC person would tell you that probably a lot of it's caused by home you know, mistakes made at home. I uh, got let one more couple slides because I get this. We get this comment a lot that actually uh, we're too we're too sanitary now. People are getting sick because we are you know, washing our hands too much or too many too sterile, I guess. So there is this hygiene hypothesis for asthma that exposure to germs teaches a child's body to differentiate between harmless substances and, har and harmless ones that trigger asthma. However, it's not that simple because there are some microbes that actually may cause uh, asthma rather than prevent it. In addition, there are all some of these infections that also can be worse than actually asthma. So there's, there's probably truth on both sides of that fence. But there is compelling evidence that exposure to germs doesn't obviously increase your immune system. But there is a theory that exposure to non-pathogen is just as good or better than exposure to the pathogens in some cases. And kind of taking you back, uh, everybody knows of Louis Pasteur. He's probably saved millions of lives by his, his germ theory and actually developing immunizations. But there was, a, you don't hear much about Antoine Beauchamp. He had the conflicting at the, lived the same time as Louis Pasteur had the host theory. He believed that germs existed in everyone and that they were opportunistic. So when you got weak, they took over. So again, we're coming around to that because there's epidemiological evidence now or truth that we see a decrease in infectious diseases in the developing world, but an increase in autoimmune and allergic diseases. So again, balancing that out is the problem. And the last, kind of the last thing I want to bring up is there's the, we're learning more that the human microbiome project, actually you can send your uh, feces off and get it analyzed. You want for $89, there's a company that does that, what your biome is, at least in your intestines. But essentially, there are 10 to 100,000 times more bacteria in your cells in your body than human cells. You probably know that. Uh, human microbiome includes bacteria, fungi, viruses, and archaea. You hear a lot about archaea, but actually, Living organisms are divided into three categories now, archaea, bacteria, and eukaryotes, of which we are. So kind of, kind of take an equal stance there. And uh, this microbiome is implicated in diabetes, cancer, allergies, asthma, MS, and autism. So there's a lot of work being done there, and I kind of have broken down into the, the project. So again, I'd like to acknowledge uh, Brian Chalnowski for some of the graphics. And if I have any questions, I'll be glad to take them.